good morning. And I know I'm really excited for Christmas leftovers next Sunday. If you've been thinking about, do I do Christmas ham or Christmas turkey? Well, just do one and then hope someone brings the other, right? Um, it's great. All right. Uh, this morning, though, we're, we're going to uh, sit and, and be nourished by the Word of God. And so before we, we turn to His Word, let's pray. Lord God, uh, we come and we need to be fed. Uh, we need to hear from you. And we are so thankful that you have given us your word uh, where we, we, we can hear of you and your, your revelation clearly, where you tell us what you are like, where you reveal your character, your works to us. And we pray that you would feed us in this time, that you would give us by your spirit, not just ears to hear, but a palate to savor what you have for us here. And that you would be nourishing us, nourishing our, our souls, nourishing our faith, growing us more into the image of Jesus Christ, uh, who we, we need and long to be shaped in, into the image of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this season of Advent, we are going through this sermon series that we're calling Advent Songs, where we're looking at various songs in the Bible that relate to the season of Advent. Either it's a traditional song in the Bible that you think of for Advent, if it touches on, on themes, it's a, if it's associated in some way. Uh, we've looked at, at Hannah's song. Uh, the last two weeks, Daryl has brought us through Mary's song, uh, the, the Magnificat. Today, we're going to be looking at yet another very noticeable, uh, notable song in the Bible, a song that we can't miss, even though probably most of us don't have associations with it in Advent. And I'm referring to the Song of Songs. Uh, quite literally, the Song of Songs, li literally the greatest of songs. You may also know it as the Song of Solomon. And you might be thinking this morning, oh, Why? Today, really? And this is the part maybe where some of you start to feel a little uncomfortable. My kids are here. My parents are here. We're going to have some awkward conversations later. Um, and that's because if you don't know uh, the Bible very well, if you don't know what the song of songs is, it's a love song. And not merely a song that's extolling love, but also the physical intimacy and desire in love. And it's a book that we often avoid at all costs or we have this unhealthy preoccupation with because of the subject matter and how it's described. But in all those instances, we're not actually listening, though, to what the song is and what it has for us. It is full of this, this sensual Im imagery that's intended to get our, our, our attention, but it never delves into the explicit, it never really delves into the, the, uh, the, the ways that we often at times associate explicit imagery. But unfortunately, though, we've stayed away from this book too often because we are often unable to view intimacy, which is this God-given aspect of married life, apart from our own cultural and individual sexual brokenness, which is why God has given us this book then, to give us a healthy and a positive vision for this gift of intimacy and desire that he designed our bodies to receive and to express. So at this point, you might be nodding in agreement. Yes, that's necessary. But there's one huge question that might be going through some of your minds. 
Why are you preaching from this song in Advent? Why right now? Well, this is, this is Advent songs, right? That's our series. You're telling me you don't get it? You don't understand the connections here? It actually fits right in with the themes of this season. And if you don't believe me, just hang on a little bit here. Because this song, just like Advent, is about longing and desire and waiting. We're not going to be looking at the whole eight chapters of the Song of Songs this morning. We're just going to be looking at one movement in the song. But it will help us, though, to understand the overall progression and structure in in the whole song. The song is a series of lyrical movements which have two characters. We have a woman and a man who are deeply in love with each other. And they go back and forth singing about their desire and their admiration for the other, celebrating their love, extolling the physical and intimate aspects of how they share in that love. It's understood here that they are expressing then their sexual natures in the ways that God intended, with great freedom within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. And in fact, the description of the consummation of their love only comes after the wedding in their song. So there's nothing dirty, there's nothing shameful or scandalous to be seen here. It's all according to the way that God gave. And yet the song also moves in this direction towards intimacy in marriage. As it moves there, there are various scenarios where the two lovers celebrate their love and their longings and their desires to be with one another. And in some, some, some ways that really stick with us. And that's what we're going to be looking at in particular this this morning. It's a section just prior to their wedding when they're in the throes of longing and desire, waiting for the day that they come together in consummate joy. So I'm going to read Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8 to 3, verse 5. And it begins here with the woman's perspective, with her voice addressing the man. And this is God's word. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he waits behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city In the streets and in the squares, I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? 
Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Amen. Let's get an overview of this part of the song to understand what's going on. Uh, They're not yet married here. That's going to come in the next movement. But you get the sense, though, that the time is nearing here. And the woman sees her beloved man, her soon-to-be husband, approaching her. She admires his form and elegance and speed in his approach as like a stag or a gazelle, like a deer leaping across the hills. He comes with this eagerness And then he stops and stares, not only like a stag bounding across the grass, but then he stops and he does that deer-like stare, you know, where they just stand there and they stare. But it's staring now at her, completely enraptured with her. And there's this wall or a fence or some sort of lattice there separating the two of them. We see in verse 9. She's probably still at the house of of her family until the wedding day. But then he calls to her, hey, let's go. Spring is here, right? The the world's in bloom. The grass is green. The sky is blue. The trees are budding. The air is fragrant. The doves are cooing. The dead of winter is gone. New life is springing forth. Want to come out and join me? Let's go take a walk. Let's look at the beauty of the world together. Let's take it in. This is better than the classic I like long beaches on the wa- or long walks on the beach, right? And he compares her then to a dove that's hidden in a cliff. You're inaccessible right now. I want to see you. I want to hear your voice. Get this fence out of my way. It's the only thing stopping us from being together and the sharing then in this fruitfulness of life. But now isn't the time though. And until then, they realize that they need to protect this good thing that they have. Verse 15, we have there, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Vineyards require care, especially in the time when all the new shoots and the blossoms are, are coming forth. And the last thing you need is some creature to come through like a fox, tumbling through to damage the tender goods. And their love is the vineyard there. It's blossoming. It's blooming. It will bring forth a sweetness in its own time. But now's not that time. And so they say, let's guard what we have. Let's protect our love from whatever it is that might spoil it. And her response then in verses 16 through 17 echo this. I belong to you and you belong to me. There'll be a time for us to go and to be fruitful. But today isn't that day. And there's a scene shift then in in chapter 3, verse 1. The day turns to night, and she's lying on her bed, and she's dreaming of her man. It's not a dream of pleasure or of joy. It's one of fear, because she dreams that she's lost him. Where is he? Where could he be? And so in her dream then, she, she goes out into the city in this fearful search. I must find him. I must find him. Where is he? And she even finds the watchmen that are making the rounds there. And they've got to know, right? If anyone's to know, it's them as they're keeping tabs on the city in the middle of the night there. But they don't know where she is either, or where he is either. And 
But right then, when you get the idea, and she turns the corner from them, there he is, the one whom my soul loves. And she's determined then in her dream to not lose him again. She takes hold of him. She drags him home and brings him into the innermost room of the house. And she will not let him go. And this is where we might think, well, this is where they begin to consummate their love. I mean, certainly if you're watching a movie, this is where you would expect that to happen. But it's like the dream ends where it just goes black. It, it stops. Because even though some people might think like, well, this is the, the otherwise um, appropriate moment for, the, for this to happen, it's still not time. Because they say, it ends here in verse 5, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This isn't the right time. Even though it's in a dream sequence, the right time is about to happen because the wedding is nearly here. So what do we make of all this here? What do we make of this section of, of, of the song? What the center all of all of this is, is longing and desire. The desire for, of the woman for her beloved, the desire of the man for his beautiful one. They're longing for each other. They cannot wait for the day when their, their love can reach this climactic intimacy. And the idea of longing and desire then is what we're going to really focus on in this sermon today. Because we first cannot miss here the longing and the desire of the man and woman that we have in the song. The two have this longing for each other. It's what the song's about. They're pining for one another. They're drawn towards one another deeply. They recognize the beauty that they have. It's full of this poetic language where they describe each other in ways that might seem a little strange to us, particularly if you continue to read throughout the song. But they highlight the attributes and aspects of one another that they see as beautiful. My beloved bounding like a stag or a gazelle over the hills. My dove in the cleft of the rocks. They are infatuated with the other. They see the other as beautiful. The man cannot break his gaze from her. And then her heart flutters when she hears the sound of his voice. And it's important to see that this longing and desire they have is mutual. It's not a song of unrequited love. It's a song of two people in love, waiting for the moment then when they are brought together. There's no coldness on one's part. No side is unwilling. He calls her my beautiful one. She calls him my beloved and him whom my soul loves. This isn't one-sided. Both the man and the woman are celebrating the other here. The man desires the, the woman. The woman dreams of the man. And both are longing for their wedding. And because this love is mutual, it's also exclusive. Each one has eyes only for the other. If there wasn't an exclusivity in this song, it would lose its effect, wouldn't it? My beloved, the one whom my soul loves. Oh yeah, and that other guy too. No, it's a mutual love. It's exclusive and then a later monogamous love. And that leads them both to exhibit the strong sense of carefulness in their shared love. Like catch the foxes. Catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Just because they're madly in love with each other doesn't mean that it can't be spoiled or broken. Love takes cultivation. It takes a careful cultivation, not only to continue to allow it to blossom, but also to protect it from anything that might threaten to undo it. 
Just like catching the foxes that might wreak havoc upon the tender shoots of a vineyard, a loving relationship continues to flourish, or it continu- uh, a loving relationship that continues and to flourish needs an ongoing care and protection. It doesn't allow for anything to spoil the goodness of what's there. It's careful to pull the weeds of what might threaten the relationship. But even though it re- there's work in love, even though there's, um, it, it takes effort, it's also joyful. Both the man and the woman are pursuing the other with joy. You can't read this in some sort of monotone, droll voice. It drips with passion and joy and thrill. I mean, even the notes about protecting their love and catching the foxes, it's still with this brightness and this gladness in there. Because they know that this is worth chasing after. They're willing to do the work because they want to be with the other. And that's why they're willing to wait with this expectancy. They ache and they long for each other here to come in this physical, intimate union. But they're waiting for the right time and the right context. They're waiting for the the wedding day to finally bring about their love. And even though there are times where they feel that pull, turn away, my stag. Do not awaken love until it pleases. There'll be a time and a place for that to happen. We should note that the song never discourages these longings and desires. They're part of marriage. And even having those longings leading up to marriage, is that's still God-given. But the time is also God-given. Those longings are intended to lead up to the right moment. And so they are longing for, for one another, waiting for the wedding. And at this point, you might still be asking, so why is this an Advent sermon? Because God's people are also waiting. God's people are also waiting for a wedding. And that involves longings and desires as similarly described in this song here. We wait and we long for a consummation at a future wedding which is to come. See, whenever we talk about love, marriage, sexuality, we need to also think about Jesus and his bride, the church. Is this a song about Jesus? Not directly. It's a celebration of love and intimacy in marriage. But the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, where Jesus is most clearly revealed, It explains how marriage and sexuality was always intended by God to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. So this song isn't about Jesus, but it isn't about marital love and union. And that's all about Jesus. Ephesians 5 says that the husband and wife relationship is patterned off of the loving relationship between Jesus and his church. That every marriage ought to reflect that. Revelation 19 describes his coming, the one that we're waiting for, to be a wedding. The groom coming back to take his bride with love and joy, just like they're meeting together at the altar. And the excitement and the joy and the bliss of that day, it's like a bride and a groom coming together in consummation of their love. Even the physical intimacy taking place in marriage is intended to reflect the excitement of that day. But until then, we wait. And that's why this is an Advent sermon. Because there's longing and desire and waiting and anticipation for that day to arrive. Just like 
a man and a woman waiting to come together in marriage. And just like both the groom and the bride are waiting and longing for that day, it's the same here. It's the same for us. And so we think about longing and desire. Well, there's also a longing and desire of Jesus that he has for the church. There's a a, a longing and desire that Jesus has for the church, for his bride. I don't know the last wedding that you all have been to, but we all know the custom though, right? When the bride comes in, everyone stands up and they look back because they're supposed to see the bride. And it's rightfully so. She's taken the time to get prepped and ready. All the, the time and effort in getting the hair done, the makeup done, the dress, the focus is on her. Now, I don't remember the, where, where I've read this, but I came across it years ago and it stuck with me and it's something that I've started to do now also. Yes, when you go to a wedding, look at the bride, right? You have to look at the bride. It's part of the ceremony. But look at the, look at the groom too. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at the groom when, the, when he first sees the bride there? What's his face look like? It's beaming, right? There's tears of joy. There's this, this weird mix sometimes of, the, of the, the, the goofy grin, tears, excitement, joy, love, like all of it mixed, mixed up there. But you can just see like this bright beaming face that he has. He sees his bride. He sees his beloved coming down the aisle to meet him. And their love is going to be sealed as they make a covenant. This is the moment that he's been waiting for with the one who he loves. That's how Jesus looks at the church. Like a groom looking at his bride on a wedding day. The look on a groom's face at the wedding, the joyful, sobbing, grinning mess that's overcome with emotion, that reflects how Jesus views his beloved, full of emotion, of excitement, of love. See, just like a wedding, he's looking forward to it. He's longing for that day then when he gets to come and be united to the church in this inseparable Um, eternal fashion. He's looking forward to his return. He's looking forward. He's waiting because this is where the bride, his his church, the beloved is. And he's not waiting just because there's going to be a really great party at the end, which we see in Revelation 19, which is described as the the wedding supper of the lamb. Like that does, that sounds awesome, right? You know, it's going to be a great party. But see, a groom doesn't look forward to the wedding for the food and drink and dancing. The festivities and the revelry is subservient to the real reason why they're there. The groom is excited because the bride is there. And they're getting hitched that day. Jesus is excited because his church will be there. And they'll be together forever. And so he longs for the day of union with his bride, the church, fiercely, with the same sort of desire and fervor that we see in this song. He pursues the church with joy. He loves it so much. He pines after it. He loves it so much that he would go to the cross for it, to suffer and die in its place, a suffering that would bring him through the very judgments of of God and of hell itself so that it could be rescued from sin and wrath and darkness to be his. He loves it with the uttermost exclusivity. He has eyes for his only. He loves it even in its most unlovable moments 
when the church is unfaithful, not like a wife. He loves it so much that he continues to sing and call to her, to us, even in our wayward seasons, because he isn't content until it's with him. And even those times when our, our vows to him are broken and we're wandering, he doesn't cast us away. He continues to long after and pursue after us, calling us back to be reconciled and never once abandoning the relationship that he brought us into or, or failing to call us by the, by the loving title that he first gave us, my beloved. He's also careful and he protects his loving union with his bride. He cultivates it for its flourishing. Back in Ephesians 5, where it talks about the, the, the idea of, of marriage uh, being a, a representation of Jesus and his church. It continues, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is careful to wash and to nourish and nurture and care for his bride. He gives her what she needs most, glory and righteousness, splendor and majesty. And he works then to ensure that she will be presented to him in, in that day in love. His great desire is to see her holy and spotless. Let's be honest for a moment, though. The church doesn't always look like this. The church doesn't always reflect a beautiful bride. There may have been some of you here who, have, who are seriously questioning the church because you've been burned before, or you've been hurt by it, or you've read the history of how it all hasn't always lived up to the calling that's been given to it by God. And maybe you're examining your relationship with the church and you're tempted to just give up on it. Because as you hear the talk of the, the church here as a bride, maybe you're saying, you're saying, that's not how I see it. That's not been my experience. I've been hurt pretty bad. And you know what? You're not wrong in thinking that. Because the church has, and the church at times does, look more like it's wearing threadbare sweatpants than a wedding dress with dirt caked all over her face. But amid your questioning, in the middle of it, don't just look at how you see the church. We need to also look at how Jesus sees the church. He knows it's not always the most lovable. He knows its flaws. He sees the dirt and the ratty old sweatpants. But guess what? He still longs to be wed to it. Because he's not finished with it yet. He's still working in it. And that might be the only hope that she has. He loves her. And he doesn't only see the grime. He knows what she will look like, and that's what he sees. He sees the beauty of that wedding day. And someday he'll clean her up fully, beautify her, dress her in beautiful garments of righteousness and of glory that aren't her own but are given to her. Friends, do you see the church like that? Or do you only see it from your own perspective? We got to see it in the way that Jesus looks at it. Don't give up on the church because Jesus hasn't given up on the church. But we can't miss one other dynamic of longing here. It's not just of the man for the woman, but it's also the, the, of the woman for the man. 
And it's the longing and desire not only of Jesus for the church, but also the longing and desire of the church for Jesus. This is a mutual love, remember? Like we see pictured in the song, and as all marriages ought to be, both individuals love each other. Jesus loves his church passionately. He does so actively. He gave himself up on behalf of it. But how do we love him back knowing that? Are we a bit cool in our responses? Are we passive in how we exhibit our love back to him? Do we accept his love, his, his gifts, his doting and his attention, but with a dispassionate pursuit in turn? See, understanding his love and desire that he has for his people, even in our unlovely moments, and understanding the beauty that he's given to us then, that can only enlarge our hearts and our affections to reciprocate love back to him. And that love takes the shape of longing, longing and desire to be with him, and longing and desire for him. And this longing goes to the core of our being. Being That term that the woman used here in the song, it encapsulates that idea. Not, she doesn't just call him my beloved, but him whom my soul loves. Right, that's a concept that acknowledges even my, my deepest places there. There is a pining. There is a need. Right, we hear the common phrase thrown around in love songs and cheap poetry. I can't live without you. What's the idea here? Literally, Jesus, I can't live without you. Because Jesus, you are my life. Apart from his great graciousness and kindness, we would be nothing except deserving of wrath. But we also, though, think about the exclusivity, though, of the longing that's in this song here. And that's also seen by Jesus. And that that exclusivity that shapes the longing of the church for Jesus. It's, it longs for and has eyes only for him. It recognizes the beauty and the value and worth of Jesus, and it wants nothing else. The church commits herself to him. It swears loving allegiance and pursues him alone. We belong to him. And that also entails catching the foxes, nurturing and protecting our love so that nothing will interfere and spoil it. How do we do that? Well, for one thing, it involves recognizing our competing loves that threaten to pull away our affections from him who is most important. And recognizing also then leads to repenting. And part of repenting might also mean taking actions to remove some of those competing affections if necessary. But it also, though, means coming back again and again to hearing of his desire and of his love for us because he, the church, does, or because the church, the beloved here, doesn't have to work to earn his love and affections. It already has them. And knowing that then allows us to pursue him with joy. It takes away the burden of playing lover's games and simply to go after him with excitement and joy. Because if there isn't any joy in our relationship with him, then we need to think about what it is that we're doing. So Advent is a time of waiting and longing and anticipation for our Savior to appear. For the day of consummate joy and excitement here as we're joined with him. And as we wait then for the day when we come down the aisle on that wedding day, let's get ready for it. Let's not be passive, 
but let's pursue after the one who gazes upon us with love and who longs to also come and to meet with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, not just for this song, and what it says about human relationships, but more importantly also, what the longings and the human relationships in this song tell us about who Jesus is, about his great love for the church, even in our times of unloveliness, even when we feel like we don't deserve it. We thank you that Jesus looks upon us with the sort of deep affections and joy as a bride does, or as a groom does for for a bride. And Lord, please warm our hearts, stoke our affections knowing that. Give us also affections that love him in the same sort of way. Long for, longing for him and for the day when he will, he will return, that we get to be with him forever. Lord, grant us faith to continue to stick in there and to stay with it, even when we don't feel like it, even with, when we have serious questions. Give us a greater longing for him. We thank you for, for his care and his love for us, to watch over us until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.